Welcome to Civil Cocktail. I'm Joni Belcher here tonight with U.S. Senator Patty Murray of Washington. Hi, Senator. Nice to see you. It is great to be here. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. The journalist helping with the questions this evening, Essex Porter from Cairo TV and Natalie Brand from King 5. Senator, with so many attacks on the First Amendment and multiple threats to fire a special counsel, people, everyone here are wondering, is our democracy in peril? And if so, what can we do about it? You know, I hear a lot of discussions about that and how important our democracy is and what I believe and what gives me strong hope is that this is the most participatory I have seen our country in a very long time. Uh, I began to see it right after the inauguration of President Trump, in fact, the next day when women and men from all over the country came out in droves and said, this is what a democracy looks like and inundated streets uh, in small towns and large and said, I want my country to stand for me. I've seen it uh, when we were fighting the health care repeal by the Republicans and literally hundreds of thousands of people uh, told their stories, very personal stories about what health care meant to them and fought back. I saw it when Secretary DeVos was nominated to be Secretary of Education and as we now know, this administration doesn't vet their nominees very well. <laughs> I and, heard something about that. And, uh, something. and as the top Democrat on the Education Committee, it was my job to do that. And I looked at her resume and went, oh my gosh, she has said so many things about uh, we should not have public education and that we should have a voucher system and, and we should only have religious schools. And I thought, how am I ever going to fight back against this? And this country stood up and spoke in hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who said this is not what we want for our public education system. So I see that loud and clear from then until the Parkland students where people are standing up, speaking out, and saying I want my country to work for me. So I feel pretty good about our country right now. Do I feel good about a lot of the policies that are coming out? The divisiveness, the hate rhetoric? Uh, putting people down? No. But our country is standing up against that. That's what makes me feel good. So let's talk about EPA Chief Scott Pruitt here for a second. Which is more concerning to you, uh, the ethical violations, which are numerous, um, or the policies, which basically amount to a failure to regulate key industries? I don't think that's a choice. I think both of them I find extremely <laughs> troubling. <laughs> what are you most concerned about with Scott Pruitt? Uh, I, I am concerned about the ethical violations, about his misuse of taxpayer dollars. Tell me why the administrator needs to have security like he is building a phone booth in his office that's secure, really. Um, I mean, who but, doesn't want a phone booth in their office? Uh, yeah. I mean. But why? And why use our money to do that? Um, but this is a man who has used his power to fire, file lawsuits time and time again on behalf of lobbyists, not for the protection of our clean air and clean water um, that we are also dependent on, but for corporations to make profits. So I have a lot of problems with his policy, what he is going after, how he's deregulating, but I also have a very strong feeling that people who are members of our cabinet, who taxpayers pay for, have a responsibility to be at the top of ethical standards, not at the bottom. So for the policies, if we could address those for a second, um, how long will it take for some of the regulations that he's calling back to actually to be noticeable that we'll have, you know, um, a less clean environment? Well, uh, 
you know, over time, we all know that the impacts on our environment are felt, whether it's more kids with asthma because of clean air, whether it is uh, what happened in Flint with the water and more and more communities facing those kinds of issues, to uh, the clean coal plant uh, rule that he has rolled back that means our air will be more, more polluted. Uh, or the Paris Climate Agreement, which he was an instigator of telling the president not to be a part of. Uh, I, think, I think we should all hear what President Macron from France said when he came to Congress last week and addressed a joint session of Congress when he said, there is no planet B. And Very good I point. think that is an excellent point and one that Pruitt and this administration need to think about. Uh, so you've been out in the, um, the state, you said, when, when you first arrived here this evening. Uh, what are you hearing about the tax cuts? Are they as bad as the Democrats say? I saw some polling that said, you know, that's sagging the support for those, which wasn't very high to start with, but is now just like 27% of Americans think that the tax breaks are a good idea. But aren't some people benefiting from these? Well, th there are some people benefiting for them, and the theory that the Republicans pushed in pushing this, and by the way, this was done... Uh, they took no input from Democrats whatsoever. It was done in a very expeditious manner. There wasn't any time to review it. The bill, when we voted on it, actually had scribbles in the margin of legislative language because they were making errors. And they voted on it and sent it out just without even scrutinizing uh, the policy. They were so bent on saying we did a tax cut. You know how much it cost? $1.8 trillion. Now, Okay, so the people that benefit from this tax cut, they said would, it would trickle down to the rest of us. Seen this movie before, it doesn't happen. <laughs> um, and we have already seen that the vast majority of tax cuts that have gone to corporations, they are not using to reinvest in our economy. They are using it to buy back stocks, which only benefits Wall Street and the, and the stockholders. And by the way, a lot of them are foreign investors. So that money is not coming back into our economy yet. Um, there were some tax cuts for um, middle-income people, one time, two times only, and in our state we really got hurt um, because we have benefited from writing off our sales tax and, and deducting it, and we can no longer do that. So I haven't talked to anybody that has said, wow, I got a you know, great, great just, benefit Just out not of this. feeling it yet. And, and we will all pay for it. This is a huge problem in the future when we have to pay back this debt. So uh, record numbers of women are running uh, for office up and down the ballot. I saw a number, I'm sure it's out of date by now, but 309 women running for the U.S. House alone. Yeah. That's like the whole place almost. Um, I think they like that. <laughs> you were elected in 1992, and that was called the Year of the Woman. Yeah. So what's this year called? <laughs> yeah, um, so before I won my seat to the Senate, there were only two women in the United States Senate. and. Uh, when I won, we became six, and that was considered the year of the woman. <laughs> um, I, I will tell you, it was stunning to go back to the U.S. Senate. And I ran because I watched the Clarence Thomas hearings and saw the Senate panel where there wasn't any woman there in, uh, in the Senate to ask Clarence Thomas the questions I would have asked him. Uh, and I thought, gosh, who's speaking for me? So that's what motivated me to run. Uh, and since that time now, we've grown to 23, um, but that's not half. Uh, <laughs> and the good news is that just about every committee I'm on, there are other women who bring up issues that 
would not be brought up, frankly, if we weren't there. Um, women tend to work together to find solutions. We're not that interested in politics being a game, like we'll get this next year. Um, so we want to get things done, and that is, that's good. But I still am in an amazing number of meetings and rooms where I'm the only woman there. And uh, if we want our country to work for us, we need um, people at the room that, in the room that are diverse, that bring different ideas, speak differently, and can relate to uh, all of our population in ways that not only helps us pass policies that work, but allows us to come home and have people say, this works for me, because somebody was there who understood what I was going through. Uh, who tends to end the government shutdowns? Time after time, it seems, from this distance from Washington, that it's the female senators. And I know this is a weird way to ask this question, but um, does it have something to do with the monthly gatherings? And I don't know if everybody in this room even knows about the monthly gatherings among the, the female senators. Uh, so the women senators, uh, when I came in in, in 1992, Bar Senator Barb Mikulski, who was the senior senator, invited us to her office. There is not a book on how to be a senator. So we sort of started this, how do we support each other? Uh, and we did it on purpose because we believed that we didn't want to be the only women ever to get elected. And for us to encourage other women to run would be to be successful. So our goal was to get things done. And we have met um, about every other month we have dinner together. We have two rules. We can talk about anything, but we can't talk about what we said outside this room. So it's a, a sense of where we can really get together, Democrats and Republican, women senators, to talk about the issues, to talk about our families, to talk about the challenges. No staff is present, no is staff that right? No staff is present. Yeah. Uh, and we really have a chance to get to know each other personally and share a lot of common goals. So we disagree on a lot, let, let me be clear. Um, you know, not everybody walks in that room and says, great, um, but we have a chance to discuss it out of the public eye and really come to some conclusions. And one of the things we all believe is that we are not there um, to just have political fights. We really do want to make our communities better. And in order to do that, you have to compromise, you have to work on things. Your goal has to be to find ways to solve problems, and that's how we try to get things done. A lot of people say Democrats have to stand for something beyond we don't like Donald Trump. What is the succinct Democratic message that really connects to middle class voters? Well, here's what I believe. You're absolutely right. I think um, the coming election is going to be a lot about I don't like someone running our country who has these policies or who puts people down, who's divisive, whose rhetoric is um, so hurtful. But Democrats do have to stand for something in order for voters to support us. And here's what I think. I believe that most Americans want to have the freedom to be who they can be, to achieve that American dream. And they want the freedom to be able to send their kids to school to learn not to have shooting drills. I think they want to be able to go to college and graduate without debt. I think they want, most Americans want the freedom to know that they uh, can get health care when they need it, and it won't be so out of sight that their families hurt. I think most Americans uh, want, want the freedom to be able to walk down the street or go to a job interview and not be judged by what they look like or what religion they are or where they come from, but on their merits. And if we fight for those freedoms and we fight for those ideals, paint that picture for this country, I think that's what wins for Democrats. So audience, oh, we have audience.
parties right now appear to be divided. So what do you see in terms of the challenges of uniting as a party, uh, particularly ahead of 2020? Who would you like to see emerge as a leader and potentially run? Uh, for president? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I have a lot of really good friends who are, <laughs> are looking at it. And, um, and I think, you know, we are two and a half years out. And this is where people really need to start um, thinking about the challenge of running, which is incredibly hard to do. Um, but to really think about who they are, what they believe in, the tone they want to set, set for our country. And I think there is going to be people we don't even know about yet that will run. So I'm reserving my judgment. And, I'm seeing who's out there, and there's, there's really great people. Um, am I worried about my party being divided? My party desperately wants to make sure that the American people, whoever they are, have the ability to, to achieve the American dream. And I think we have different ways of getting there, different policies. But we're talking about the policies I just articulated to you access to college, affordable health care, um, the ability to be able to be recognized as an individual in this country no matter who you are. We may have different ways of getting there, but those are the ideals that unite us, and I believe that's the ideals that will, will bring us together. Essex. We, we shouldn't let the moment pass uh, without asking if you perhaps would push yourself forward in that presidential race. You are one of the nation's in More honor senior. of my absolutely fabulous family, I will answer that no. <laughs> I love what I do. All right. uh, uh, wanted to ask about uh, something you've been working on in the Senate uh, in recent weeks, uh, recently passing sweeping legislation addressing the opioid epidemic uh, and passing that through the Senate Health Committee, a, a very important milestone. There are two drugs that local providers told me about that are very effective at treating opioid addiction. They're methadone and buprenorphine. They say that providers can easily prescribe these drugs just for pain, but there are very tight restrictions if they want to use them to treat addiction. What can be done about that? So that is one area that needs to be addressed, and you're talking about medically assisted treatment for people who are uh, addicted to opioids. And uh, there's more and more scientific research showing that that is one way to really help treat people. And we do have a problem today where not enough providers have access to be able to prescribe it. Um, but that would be so short-changing the discussion about how we deal with the opioid and addictive crisis in this country by just focusing on that. We need to deal with how people got addicted in the first place, how uh, medicines are prescribed, what to do with the excess of medication. We need to deal with a new drug called fentanyl that is coming in uh, to stop it uh, before it comes into our borders. We need to have treatment centers that are open. I was today with um, moms and dads who were addicted as teenagers, one of them because he was in a car accident and was prescribed opioids and became addicted, another one because her mother was a crack cocaine user and she knew no other way. Um, then they come from a lot of different areas. But these were parents whose children were taken away from them and put into the foster system, and what got them cured was the wanting to have their kids back. But our system doesn't work today to help them get their kids back. So we're talking about a crisis that is so broad and there's no easy solutions and that's why Senator Lamar Alexander, Republican and I, introduced and passed legislation out of our committee last week that address, addresses a wide scope of areas including getting better access to Medicaid-assisted treatment. Audience, hi. 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 Thank you so much for being here, Senator Murray. I think you're doing a great job personally. Um, so with every major city in the U.S., 
facing homelessness, an increase in homelessness. And now it sounds like HUD is considering raising the subsidies, you know, or I guess lowering the subsidies, raising the rents in federal housing. What can we do to influence that? I'm concerned about how can we take some action to stop that from happening? I, I really appreciate that question. It is such the wrong solution for the housing crisis is to say, well, we'll just make a lot less people eligible. Yeah. You know? um, <laughs> the, 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 so we are, I'm speaking up against it. And I'm also gathering information from people who work with uh, those who are in public assisted housing or need to get into it to get their facts and, and the science-based information we need back to HUD about why this is wrong, and I will oppose it every step of the way. Hi there. Hi, Hi. Laura Enveen from King County Superior Court. I wonder if you could shed, shed any insight on the appointment process for the multiple federal vacancies in the Washington State Judiciary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a challenge. When we have a Republican president and a Republican-controlled Senate, uh, we, and they are filling our judiciary system as fast as they can with what I consider judges who are not neutral whatsoever, but are very too far to the right. Um, I have been working extremely hard in our state for the vacancies that we have to respect the tradition that Slade Gorton and I started many years ago, where our recommendations for judges are based on a bipartisan commission that interviews the candidates, sends three of them to us as a delegation, we interview them and send them to the White House. And I have told them innumerable times, don't just pick your friends, Mr. Trump, and send them over to us because we have a tradition in Washington State that we're gonna respect. They are listening now, and I am working with them, and I am hopeful uh, that they won't do what they've done to some other states and try and uh, go over the top of us. So uh, former Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price said this week um, that repealing the individual mandate for Obamacare is going to increase prices. Now you tell us. Um, so now what do we do about that? So I am so disappointed in this administration because they couldn't repeal Obamacare. What they have done is in, in numerous administrative steps to make it not work so they can come back and say, see, it didn't work. So not making CSR payments. They, uh, in the tax code, they uh, repealed the individual tax mandate, so the risk pool is much smaller, which raises the cost for everybody. Um, they are putting out plans and allowing plans to be adopted in states that are really junk plans. They don't cover anything, which is not okay under Obamacare, but they're putting all these new regulations out. And as a result, in this country, we will see prices go up and we will see more bear markets um, next fall when insurance companies put their prices out as a direct result of them trying to say Obamacare doesn't work. That makes me furious. That's, you know, that is so wrongheaded. So we have been working um, on our side on a number of proposals to make, uh, to make uh, healthcare work better. Uh, changing the tax subsidies so people qualify and they don't drop off immediately and have to pay more. Uh, banning the junk plans totally so they can't do that. Reinstating uh, the CSR payments and, uh, and other steps. And if we get the majority back, that is what I will be working on. My second question has 
to do with the Me Too movement, which we've seen spark change in both the private sector and public sector. But I'm wondering what you view as the next phase in Congress. I know that you've sponsored legislation, the Survivors Access to Supportive Care Act, working with a local survivor of sexual assault, but it hasn't yet moved forward in the Senate. So what are the challenges that remain in this policy area, despite shedding new light through this movement on the topic? Well, look, I, I am so amazed at the number of women and men who have had the courage to stand up and say, this is not OK. Someone cannot use their power um, in an abusive way and have someone fear losing their job or their status, afraid to talk about it, um, and it keeps empowering them. And this movement has allowed women to stand up and say it's not okay, and for all of us as policymakers, as community leaders, to be behind them. Uh, and we have, you know, we're seeing some progress, but we're not seeing enough. And I'll tell you what I'm concerned about. You mentioned the legislation I'm working on to make sure that someone who has been raped goes to a hospital and actually has someone there who knows how to deal with rape victims as a person, not just as a judicial system uh, problem, and make sure they have rape kits and counselors and all of that. We haven't been able to get it passed. We're working so hard to try and get bipartisan support. I'm not going to give up, but it is frustrating that we can't get any Republicans to support that. The other thing I have to tell you just, just happened, which is I've been pushing the Department of Labor to look at not just wealthy people, not just Hollywood people, not just politicians, but the people who go to work every day, just waitresses in, uh, in hotels, who work in stores, um, to make sure we are working so they are not harassed and are, are victims as well. And, the, and I asked the Labor Department to help us do a study to see uh, what, what the statistics are um, in our workplaces in terms of sexual harassment. We do it on our college campuses. We don't do it in workplaces. And the Secretary of Labor just said today that they couldn't do it. It was too complex. Baloney. It is not too complex. And, uh, and until we have the data, it's very hard to put in place the policies to make sure that general average person doesn't have to be somebody in Hollywood or a politician in order to have them protected as well. With Donald Trump still in office and admitting on tape that he harasses women, was it unfair that Senator Al Franken had to resign? You know, it, it's always e easy to talk about somebody else. It isn't easy when it's someone you know well. Um, but it was very clear that there were a number of uh, women who had come forward. Um, there was a lot of evidence, and uh, I think he did the right thing in stepping down because we can't protect our own. That's not what this is about. And, uh, and you know, he, he did the right thing. Does that excuse Trump? No, absolutely not. We need to make sure all people in all places don't have the power over someone else. Take you back a few years. During the Bill Clinton impeachment, you told your Senate co colleagues, and I'll quote what you said at the time, the founders did not establish the impeachment process to punish a wrongdoer. They established it to protect America. Considering what we're seeing from Donald Trump, is it time to engage the impeachment process now? That question is not timely because we have to have Mueller complete his investigation to know the facts about what the president did so they can be presented to Congress. If they reach that impeachment bar, there will be a trial. The House will have to do some kind of uh, order to impeach. And the Senate actually sits in a jury. 
So it will be my job to be the jury in that case, should it happen. But we cannot move to that until we have the facts. It is a jury case like any others, essentially. And until we have the Mueller investigation completed and we have the facts behind us, it is not the time that we should move forward on. But do you see that the president may, as many see, that the president sort of confessed some of the things about obstruction of justice uh, when speaking with NBC's Lester Holt, uh, for example, or telling the Russian ambassador. Do I think this is totally frustrating? Yes. <laughs> but for all my friends who want to rush impeachment, I will just say Mike Pence. That's... <laughs> <laughs> As a practice in pediatric emergency physician, I'm very uh, concerned and disappointed in the, uh, the outcome of the, the Second Amendment. As uh, in 1994, the Dickey Amendment removed funds for research on firearm injury and re did, would not allow uh, funds to be spent for firearm advocacy or gun control. So for the last 14 years, we've been working to try to get research back in. And in this budget, they said it's okay to do firearm research, but there's no money. Can we follow the money? Welcome to Congress. So we, um, I have been very frustrated by the fact that we have not been allowed to do any research on gun violence. The CDC has been specifically banned from doing that. So in the latest budget, as you mentioned, we put in the language that allows them to. I have met with the head of CDC, who's changed over several times now, uh, this administration, um, and they have assured me that they are going to move forward. But they have not as of yet, and this is something I believe is absolutely serious, and I am going to continue to push them until they begin the research on that. Uh, speaking to that point, uh, the Parkland kids watched Congress act like it was really concerned and it was going to do something about uh, improve school safety, and then nothing happened. What do you say to those school students? I bet you've met with them. I, I have and met people with throughout them. our state who have worked on this. I've met with the Parkland students. They are amazing, to their credit. Um, I have met with the students here, who have been organizing, and I would say to them what I say to everyone: Do not give up. And when people tell you you can't do something, it's because they're afraid you will. Um, that nothing ever happens overnight. It happens because a country changes and a culture changes and voting patterns change. And this is something that's going to take a while, and I'm in it with them. Um, how often do you feel like Sisyphus rolling a rock up a hill? Um, <laughs> you know, you think you've got control of something in Congress, only to hear some, uh, some new sort of wild-eyed thing that the, your party has to kind of marshal its forces and, and work to combat. How I often think, do you I think feel the like hardest that? thing about my job right now is not paying attention to the president's latest tweet and having it divert us. Do you do from that? Do you honestly do that? You don't, don't pay, pay attention? attention? Yeah. I, I can't. I would never get anything done if I read all of his tweets. But, but I, think, I think it's advice for all of us. Uh, he uses his tweets to divert us from the attention of what he's actually doing. I'm focused on what we're actually doing. So my producer says you can ask a really quick question and you can give an even quicker answer. Sure. Thank you, Senator. Um, I totally agree with your earlier comment that we live in an age of a very vibrant democracy, which is encouraging. I think that one of, one of the features of that democracy is outrage. That's what's driving a lot of participation. What are your suggestions about what we in Washington can do to help keep the engagement high but turn down the anger? 
That is such an important point. Um, it's sort of the don't get mad, get even philosophy. Um, and it's what started me in politics many years ago when our state legislature defunded the uh, preschool program my kids were in. I didn't go home and yell. I went home and I called every parent I knew and I got them to call other parents and we organized 13,000 parents and we went back to Olympia and inundated every single committee hearing until they reinstated the funds. Um, you have to work. Democracy takes work. Uh, it, uh, it takes people being actively involved. It takes us uh, working with other friends and telling other people and getting them involved too and what makes me feel so good right now is people aren't sitting at home and yelling at their televisions they are getting out and be yelling get, at this television. <laughs> uh, but they are getting involved and even if you don't agree with everyone their voice is important it's important to listen to the people with you it's important to hear what motivates those people who aren't and I hope that our country moves to a place where we respect all voices and begin to listen again. So we have been talking with Washington senior Senator Patty Murray, and we're coming right back with former Washington governor, former U.S. Commerce Secretary, and former U.S. Ambassador to China, Gary Locke. Thank you. Welcome back to Civic Cocktail. Joining us now is Gary Locke. Home again in the Seattle area, advising clients on trade and investments. Hi, Mr. Governor, Mr. Ambassador, Mr. Secretary. <laughs> Don't know what to call you. Let's start with the census. You were the Commerce Secretary. Uh, how will the new citizenship question impact the census? Well, the, there's, uh, we've not had that question on the entire census since 1950. And uh, given all the uh, law enforcement and the attitude of the Trump administration and going after people who are here un, are not documented, basically illegal. Uh, there are going to be millions of people, even by the estimate of the Census uh, Bureau and the director, I mean the Secretary of Commerce who administers it, uh, Mr. Ross, that um, millions of people simply will not fill out the census form. And that's going to result in uh, affects the uh, allocation of the number of seats in the state of Washington, uh, in the Congress, in the state legislature. Um, and also uh, drives and determines the allocation of billions and billions of dollars to the states. It's based on population. And so if we have an undercount, uh, that will result perhaps in Washington State not gaining a, an additional seat in Congress that it might otherwise be entitled to or some other state losing that seat and giving other parts of the country, primarily white rural America, uh, more seats uh, than they would otherwise be entitled to. And that, that uh, hurts representation fair representation, fair allocation of dollars. So if it's going to be an inaccurate count, you know, why would we, why would we proceed? Well, we still, we still need to have an account because if everybody boycotted in the state of Washington, Washington State theoretically could end up with no seats in Congress. Uh, <laughs> uh, and how do you divide up the boundaries or make up the boundaries between urban and rural or even within the urban areas for the state legislature? So we, we, need to, we need to encourage people to uh, participate in the census. And maybe we ought to take a, uh, a phrase from Hamilton or something, rise up. Uh, maybe, we all, maybe we all boycott whatever question that's going to be uh, and, uh, and just ignore that. Why did we get rid of the citizenship question on the decennial census um, after the 1950 census? What, what was the... Well, that's because back target? in 1950, and, and we've had it even since then, we have this super, super census. Uh, uh, you know, when, when George Washington first started the census, and it's required by the Constitution, there were basically only 10 questions. And, and the questions were, you know, how many people living in the household, uh, sex, 
uh, and some very basic information. And since then, it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, almost 100 questions. You know, it got to the point where in the every 10-year census, the decennial census, they were even asking, um, do you have a washer or dryer? Do you have a microwave? How many toilets do you have? <laughs> Is it a flush toilet? Um, do you share the phone with other people in the, like, the apartment? Because I grew up with a party phone. Not, a, lot, a lot of people won't know, won't know what a party phone is. But a lot of, they, they were asking all these demographic, demographic questions. How far do you go to work? How long does it take for you to get to work? It was really a survey of America. Well, that wasn't really required in the US Constitution, which says just count the people in America. So after 1950, they had a small segment of that decennial census asking all of these questions, including citizenship. And then a few decades ago, we just got rid of that altogether. And we now have sample surveys throughout the year asking these really uh, mundane questions, uh, including recently, I mean, uh, I think 10 years ago, still asking about the number of toilets and microwave ovens and washer dryer and what kind of heat do you have? Is it, you know, is it the gas, oil, whatever? Uh, they've now moved all of those questions to a very small little sample that's done actually several times a year in small uh, groups of populations, and from that they extrapolate. But we do collect information on citizenship in these census surveys. In the, what they call the American survey, right. along with, you know, what's your education level and, and things like that. Are those reliable? It's fairly, uh, you, know, the, you know, this is something for statisticians, uh, but they, they think that it's fairly reliable. Um, well, why is it okay to ask the citizenship question in the in the American survey and not in the census? Because it's why not it? binding, it's not required. There's no penalty if you don't participate, quite frankly. I mean, technically there is a penalty, but nobody enforces it. And it's not going to affect the dollars that your community gets. It's not going to affect whether or not you get the right seats in Congress that you're entitled to. It's not required by the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution says we just count the number of people living in America. Now, some people want that citizenship question because they think that only the number of citizens should be allowed to vote and representation in Congress should be based on how many citizens there are. Well, back in 1790, when we had the very first census, we counted everyone, even if they were legally never allowed or possibly could never possibly vote. We counted the number of slaves. We actually had this rule of three-fifths. For every five slaves there were, we counted them as three individuals. All right? That was the rule of three-fifths. Clearly, they were never going to be able to vote under our laws at that time, but we counted them anyway. And so for those who say we should only count citizens and only the citizens should therefore be used uh, in determining the seats of Congress or the state legislature or whatever, baloney. That was never part of the original intent of the founders of the Constitution. So a lot of people are really upset about the idea that we would be asking the citizenship question and chasing people away and affecting representation and federal dollars. I think, it's it a, I think it's a very blatant political move, quite frankly. How so? Well, you it, it, uh, you're going to depress the number of people in urban areas among minority groups. And you know a lot of the minority people in, in urban groups are from traditionally democratic states. And so Washington may not get as many members of Congress. And maybe Iowa will get one or keep its members of Congress. Uh, because what happens is the number of members of Congress is set. So if one state gains because of an increase in population, another state will lose. So what can citizens in, in this audience do about it? You were, you were hinting that a little bit earlier, like perhaps not answering something. But, well, I but think please we, elaborate on that. We need to make sure that minority communities 
uh, are not afraid to answer the, the census form. And we need to figure out ways in which they, they can answer it because they're deathly afraid of people coming knocking on their doors. Uh, because if you, don't answer, if you don't fill out the census form, we, the, the Commerce Department, the Census Bureau, will hire hundreds of thousands of people, uh, retirees, firefighters, whatever, students, to go knocking on the door to try to get that answer. And uh, that's what they really fear because, you know, uh, if you could have some people saying, ooh, I think this person's not here legally. I'm going to report them to INS. They're How much of that does go on? Uh, is, well, it, is it a real fear? Is it, it's, it, it's fair to it's worry a fear. about that? It's a fear. And it doesn't matter whether it's real based on substance or not. There are privacy laws. We do, the Commerce Department does not share the information with the FBI or well, immigration. But, you know, we've heard a lot of assurances from other federal agencies. And you see all this cooperation in other cities between local law enforcement and immigration officers or uh, customs and border people. And so uh, there is a fear. And that, justified or not justified, it is there. It is real. And therefore, it will de depress the number of people answering the census. And that's going to ultimately hurt the community. Audience, if you want to join us, please start to line up or the, the time will run away. We won't be able to ask questions, so please do that. Um, Gary Locke is former ambassador to China. What do you think of the president's tariffs on steel and aluminum, and will they work? Well, I very much oppose the, the impo imposition of tariffs. I mean, uh, the tariffs were really aimed at China, but China right now, um, only, well, only 3% of the foreign steel coming into the United States right now comes from China. So we've imposed this worldwide set of tariffs on aluminum and steel. It affects Mexico, it affects Japan, South Korea, the EU countries, Australia, a lot of our closest allies. And um, so we're punishing everyone else in order to get at China. And, uh, but now we're also, but the objective was to bring back the steel industry in America by raising the prices of all foreign steel coming in, that would make the higher prices of American steel you know, closer to the foreign steel and therefore more competitive. Um, it was a campaign promise. Is it realistic? It sounded well, a little... Well, then, then he turns around and gives, gives exemptions to almost everybody. So, <laughs> so, you know, the steel coming from Alaska, or no, excuse me, coming from Korea, uh, which is a big supposedly offender of low-cost uh, steel prices, um, will be exempt. So steel coming from South Korea will not face the tariff, which is a surcharge or a tax. Um, from Canada and Mexico, as long as they uh, agreed to uh, renegotiate NAFTA and, and some other countries. Europe was supposed to be uh, stuck with, or hit with these tariffs. It's been postponed. Uh, they've said that they're going to retaliate. So um, I don't think it's getting at, at China. Uh, and uh, so I, I just think it's the wrong way to go. Uh, That's excellent. We, we, we actually have more serious issues with the trade and economic policies of China. And if those are, and, and it's primarily the forced transfer of technology to Chinese companies. So many sectors of the Chinese economy are off limits to foreign or U.S. investment, whether it's uh, cloud computing, whether it's uh, uh, natural gas, or excuse me, uh, uh, oil and gas exploration, whether it's in financial services. And so, in or, and, and so some of those are completely off limits, no foreign participation at all. Others have requirements of saying that uh, American companies, foreign companies, can't own more than 50% of an enterprise. 
And so you have to have a partner with a Chinese company. Let's say Microsoft wants to do cloud computing. They have to partner with a Chinese company. And then you share your technology and your trade secrets with your partner. And after a few years, they've learned it all. And they don't need that part, you as, an, as a company. And they can go off on their own and compete against you. And it, that does happen. That's and that what does you were happen. explaining right. that to me because right. I didn't really understand right. uh, originally right. how the technology was stolen or, right. or, or, or transferred. secrets or transferred or, or however you want to phrase right. it. But it becomes, it's because of this uh, keeping American companies at 49%, right. right? Right. And then, of course, but there are no limits on foreign investment in the United States. I mean, Alibaba can offer cloud computing services on their own in the United States without having to have a partner. Chinese companies can be involved in oil and gas. They can set up financial services, insurance, et cetera, et cetera, without those restrictions. So it's a, not a level playing field. If that's our concern, we should really address those. Maybe we should impose the same restrictions on Chinese companies investing in America. And in fact, it's a complaint around the world. So maybe all of the Western countries should band together and say, hey, you know, you don't allow our companies to invest uh, in China. Or if we do invest, it's under very uh, strict conditions, which force us to share our knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's not fair. Maybe we're going to limit your investment in our countries as well. United States has uh, sent a trade delegation to China this week. Here's how the New York Times <coughs> describes them. Instead of a single point person with a clear set of demands, the White House is sending six trade and economic officials with differing ideas on how to approach China and who are deeply divided over the desirability of a trade war. So my question to you, with that as a delegation, has the U.S. already lost the trade war? It's going to be incumbent upon those key players, from the Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of Commerce, to the trade representative and to some of the president's uh, advisors. <clears throat> some are more in favor of globalization, but realizing we have problems. Others think that we should just not do anything with China. We should block all their stuff coming in. We should impose 50% tariffs on any Chinese goods coming into the United States. The challenge is, who will speak for America? And do they have a common negotiating position? Otherwise, we'll get picked apart. We'll get picked apart. And the reason I'm concerned about these tariffs is that so much of what Americans consume every day is made in China. So many of those small little components that American companies use in manufacturing come from China. Uh, so a tariff on all these Chinese goods simply means higher prices of Chinese goods coming in, uh, whether it's the components that companies will use or the prices or the things that we buy. And the problem is that for American consumers and American companies, there aren't a lot of available substitutes at a comparable price. For Americans, I mean, the shoes that we buy at Macy's, Target, uh, um, or even you know, REI, must, much of that comes from China. So what's our alternative? Buy $600 Italian shoes? Um, virtually all the microwaves that we purchase come, are made in China. So we're going to eat the cost no matter what. Chinese, uh, Chinese companies have a lot more options. They don't have to buy. American soybeans. They can buy more soybeans from Brazil. They don't have to buy Boeing airplanes. I mean, there's a huge backlog of Boeing uh, airplanes that have been ordered by the Chinese companies, but next year, maybe they order more Airbus. All right? Uh, and the list goes on and on. So, uh, you know, ultimately, it's the consumer. Nobody wins in a trade war. It's the consumers, the workers, the companies of both countries. And if we're concerned about technology transfer, I don't know that having a trade war gets at the fundamental issues that American companies and foreign companies have.
Audience, don't be shy. Come on up if you have a question. Natalie Brandt. I'm wondering if you can give us a big picture look and trade included in a number of other issues, but what do you view as the long-term future relationship between the United States and China, particularly <coughs> with President Xi and the recent decision about term limits, uh, bringing that relationship even into a more important uh, spotlight focus? Wow, it's warm. <laughs> <laughs> Just got off an airplane from China, and so I'm kind of a little bit jet-lagged, too, and air and quality, everything. I think that uh, you know the areas of agreement um, between China and the United States are actually far outweigh the areas of disagreement. And uh, I think the U.S.-China relationship has really grown uh, quite strong and, and uh, closer together, uh, uh, more interdependent, um, not only in terms of economy but also in terms of scientific research, culture, uh, and the list goes on and on. Um, and even in terms of international security, I mean, so we need to continue those areas of agreement while really trying to focus on those areas of disagreement. But we must understand that uh, our, the areas of disagreement far uh, or are far and away a small number or a percentage uh, of the areas of common interest and, and uh, common agreement. I mean. China and the United States worked together to try to halt piracy off the coast of Africa. Uh, China was a key member uh, of uh, the UN negotiations with Iran. Uh, they've been agreeing to the UN sanctions proposed by the United States against North Korea. They've been putting pressure on North Korea uh, to really come to the table and stop. Because China has a big interest in making sure that the Korean Peninsula is stable. Uh, a lot of research together on uh, cancer. Uh, uh, the, the latest strain of, of TB uh, that is resistant to most uh, everyday drugs. So the list goes on and on, and, and those areas of common interest are far outweigh the areas of disagreement. President Xi, with no, uh, uh, they, the Chinese recently got away with term limits of, of the Chinese president, uh, got moved the retirement age uh, up, and uh, so he's going to be there for quite some time, which really means um, um, he'll be able to continue his policies perhaps unchecked. That's good or bad. I mean, if you're looking for economic reform, then he'll be able to continue to push that through. And the bureaucracy knows that they can't outweigh him. And the special interest groups know they can't outweigh him or outweight him. But if you're concerned about human rights or freedom of the press and other things, then you might be very concerned about some of their policies of really cracking down on journalists, on minority groups, uh, and, uh, and even nonprofit organizations, what they call non-government organizations, that are even trying to promote things that the Chinese government likes, like trying to stamp out corruption. But they, the Chinese government doesn't want some of these groups, nonprofit independent groups, to be some, become so powerful or popular that some, for fear that someday they might take on an issue counter to the government. So better to nip the creation and support of these organizations now, however laudable their purposes however consistent they might be with Chinese policy now for fear that they may come up with policies or activities that are contrary to the government five or ten years from now. Audience question. Hi. Hi. Catherine McConnell, proud to be a charter member of City Club. There's a now iconic picture of you. I think you've got a kid's backpack on your back and you're oh, buying yeah. coffee oh, at yeah. Starbucks and you're off to China, <laughs> Mr. Ambassador. Um, apparently we have a new um, uh, um, State Department leader, and I'd like to know what are the 
the things you'd like the ambassadors of America out in the world, the State Department, the ambassadors to represent today about what America is, as I think that picture did of, of you and representing us uh, at that time. Well, thank you very much. That was not a kid's backpack. I still have that backpack. It's yours? It's yours? It's my backpack. It's you a Nike get a bigger backpack. one. I'm it's sorry. A, That's no, too small. No, it's a regular size Nike backpack. The Nike swoosh is clearly visible there. I've not gotten any royalties or payments or benefits from that. Um, but I was carrying it because we had Madeline's blankie in it. So and for those of you all know, that's, that is precious cargo. I mean, uh, you cannot lose that blankie and some of her crayons and, and her toys for the flight. And so, uh, but I was at a Starbucks. That was on the trip uh, uh, just before we jumped on the airplane. I don't know who took that picture, but it went viral. The, the Chinese somehow saw that, uh, and the press figured out from that what time we were going to arrive. We did not alert the press or anybody. We arrived around 11 o'clock at night, and, you know, so they camped out at some entrances or exits uh, of the airport, and they saw us coming down, and some of them took pictures. So I, had, so I was also carrying the backpack along with all of us. We're carrying luggage, the dog, the cat carrier, I mean, you name it. And that went viral as well. And, and so people knew <laughs> that uh, we traveled economy class. That's actually a State Department rule. Uh, we went to the supermarket ourselves, ate in local restaurants. And so it created a contrast, and it created a little bit of a problem because it contrasted our behavior with the Chinese government officials who have, you know, they're catered to. Uh, and so some of the, the internet chatter uh, in China was, why can't our government officials be like Ambassador Locke? So then, and then Vice President Biden came and he, you know, stopped in on a noodle shop and just had lunch with uh, the local people. And so later on, the Chinese propaganda department placed editorials in the Chinese government-run press saying, uh, Ambassador Locke should quit showboating and, wow. should, and should focus on diplomacy, that all of these things are an imperialistic American plot to destabilize the Chinese government. Oh, boy. I did this without Facebook. But eventually, you know, eventually President Xi uh, 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 enacted similar policies Cutting down, on, cutting down on banquets and everything and uh, uh, lavish affairs and treatment and, and having to travel economy plus. So. Governor, a trade war could hit Washington state perhaps more harshly than any other state or any other place. What can we do to protect our businesses? Oh, well, if we have a trade war, that's going to be very difficult. Like I said, they, the Chinese don't have to buy as many Boeing airplanes in the future. Um, Washington State cherries, Washington State wheat, Washington apples, and the list goes on and on uh, would be subject. And I was on a, a panel with uh, uh, Congressman uh, um, Newhouse the other day, and he was very upset with the uh, proposed uh, or, or the Chinese retaliation already on the U.S. tariffs on foreign steel, and that has had an impact on agriculture. And so uh, um, there's not much that we can really do. Uh, because we don't know what the retaliation will be from the Chinese, especially if President Trump goes ahead not only with the 50 billion that he's proposing because of the, his complaints about the tra forced transfer of American technology, but he's proposing an additional 100 million on top of that, 100 billion on top of that. We don't know the full list of what Chinese products will be subject to those tariffs coming in, but it's going to be virtually everything. And then we have to wait to see what the Chinese response will be, because they're definitely going to retaliate. They're definitely going to retaliate, just as the EU has said that they will retaliate against 
the tariffs, the steel aluminum tariffs imposed on their producers. Audience, hi. Hi, could you talk a little bit about China's uh, interests and role in North Korean negotiations? Well, they're very concerned about what's happening uh, on the Korean Peninsula because they don't want the whole thing to fall apart. They're, they're, they're not concerned or worried that North Korea will somehow fire nuclear weapons at China. They're more worried about the United States and North Korea getting into it and what will happen to the Korean Peninsula. Um, and so that's why they've been really trying to push the United States and North Korea for many, many years to engage in, to, in negotiations and discussion to lower the rhetoric. Um, quite frankly, China props up the North Korean economy, uh, but they've cut back on a lot of the supplies that they send to North Korea uh, other than basic, basic food. So the North Korean economy is really feeling it, along with all the other UN sanctions. They don't want a war because they know that in a war, the whole peninsula will be destroyed. They don't want a unified Korean peninsula uh, the way that we had with Germany because they don't want ultimately U.S. troops uh, and a democracy on the doorstep of China. So they're more worried about all the repercussions of instability uh, on the Korean Peninsula. They're worried about what the U.S. reaction might be to the continuing rhetoric of the North Korean leader or the bravado of the North Korean leader uh, toward the United States and what he might do that would precipitate a huge conflict. And, and if there is a huge devastation of war with so many people killed and, and cities ruined, you're going to have tens of millions of North Koreans who will try to flee North Korea into China. Well, China can't handle that. They don't want, they don't want the huge uh, mass uh, uh, swarm of, of millions of refugees coming into China. So it's in their own economic and political self-interest to have a stable North, uh, North and South Korean uh, a relationship and U.S. relationship. Ultimately, though, uh, China's going to have to be involved because if, if uh, North Korea gives up its nuclear arsenal, they're, they're going to want guarantees that the U.S. Army and, and the troops in Japan, uh, stationed in Japan, or the South Korean Army will not invade the North. I mean, that's why they keep their nuclear arsenal. It's to prevent the, uh, uh, an invasion from the South. Look what happened to Omar Gaddafi. He gave up his nuclear weapons at the insistence of the West, and then pretty soon there was a revolution, and the, and the Western powers supported that revolution and basically got rid of him. So they worry about that. So uh, China will have to perhaps be part of the grand bargain, um, along with Russia or whatever, guaranteeing the safety, security of North Korea. So if I, if I could, who, yeah. who do you think gets more credit then for this current chance at, at peace? Is it? Donald Trump because of his harsh rhetoric and also pressuring the Chinese, or is it really the Chinese who get the credit? I think everybody's going to get the credit, quite frankly, but let's make sure that there's ultimate peace and a deal. I mean, having an initial meeting is great, and I really applaud the president for accepting that invitation. A lot of people would have said, don't do that. And the previous U.S. position was, we're not going to sit down and talk with you. Uh, and we're not going to lift sanctions until first you disarm and completely get rid of your nuclear arsenal. Well, that didn't make any sense. I mean, why, how do you go into negotiations if you've suddenly you know, surrendered all of your weapons and gotten rid of everything? What's there to negotiate then? All right. So I, I, uh, I applaud the president for actually accepting the offer to, to meet. And it was a bold move by the North Korean leader to propose that and also a very bold move by the president to accept. And let's hope it will lead to negotiations and hopefully a peaceful resolution of this. 
but it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be very, very difficult and, and Natalie, protracted. Yeah. To quickly build upon that point, I'm just wondering how you believe China is viewing the talks that occurred last Friday between North and South Korea and what your advice would be ahead of the upcoming negotiations between President Trump uh, and North Korea if that meeting ends up happening. Um, I think they're very pleased. They're very pleased that the parties are sitting down, uh, North Korea, South Korea. Uh, they're very pleased that uh, the United States is going to sit down with uh, with the uh, North Korean leader. They've been advocating that all along. They've been advocating that all along. Uh, it's going to take, but we, sh you know, let's just hope that the president doesn't walk out, as he says he might, uh, if 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 uh, the results aren't uh, what he hopes. But we shouldn't have that much many expectations of this first meeting, other than the fact that they're meeting and that they agree to have their experts and their negotiating team continue to meet. I mean, it's not going to be done overnight because North Korea also calls for the denuclearization of the peninsula. I mean, there are, the United States does have nuclear weapons at its disposal in the south. Now, are, is the United States willing to get rid of all of that? Are they going to, uh, if the north says we want you to reduce the number of troops because if we get rid of our nuclear weapons, what's to stop those American troops and the South Korean troops from invading the north? So it's going to be very, very complicated. And ultimately, Japan has to be involved, um, Russia. Uh, South Korea, North Korea, United States, and China. Well, the glass is breaking. We've been uh, talking with former Washington Governor Gary Locke. We return in June to discuss the Seattle head tax, the Amazon tax. Thanks for watching. Thank you. Oh, that was, that was